Hello, everyone. Today, I want to talk to you about think about thinking. Uh, this is a new series I'm calling Think, and each week during the series, we will think about different subjects that are very important to our daily life. And I hope that this series will give you confidence in the truth of God's word for life. So today, I want us to think about how we think about truth and focus on truth. After all, our Savior, Jesus Christ, said that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except Jesus. So I want us to think about what that means, to think about what is truth. I think you all realize that truth, uh, objective truth, real truth, never changes. It's absolute, isn't it? So it never changes. However, most of us don't like absolutes. We like to kind of be in that wiggle room in between, don't we? You know, we want some wiggle room. Also, we kind of like that gray area in life. We don't like always things to be kind of so certain or black and white and those statements of truth that are just so certain and absolute. And so we have, oftentimes you hear this phrase, my truth. Well, that's my truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. You ever heard that phrase? In other words, my truth is personal. It's private. It doesn't necessarily even have to meet the normal standards of faith or normal standards of truth. It's what I believe. It's my truth. And you have your truth, I have my truth. Remember the Oxford Dictionary had added this word a few years ago, the word truthiness. Remember that word there, truthiness? And truthiness means that uh, it seems true to me, even if it might not be true, it seems true enough to me, I'm going to accept it as truth. It's my truth. And that other word a few years later that's now in our Oxford Dictionary, which most of you had not heard as well, is the word post-truth, remember? Emotionally, it seems true to me, so I'm going to accept it as truth, even though it may not be truth. Um, my emotions um, are overriding what my reasoning is all about. So you may have, some of you say, I never heard that word truthiness or that word post-truth, but I think we've heard the word my truth. My truth, it's personal, it's private, it's what I believe. Uh, emotionally, I may, it seems true to me anyway. Have you ever heard that statement or made that statement or think about that? You might say that truth has indeed become more relative than objective. You have your truth, I have mine. It's personal, it's private. And we live in this age of technology and information, don't we? We are just constantly bombarded with an overdose of information. There's not hardly any time to digest or evaluate anything being truthful because the time you got to one story, you have another story. And all this is there, all that information and all that data that's there, yet people are still saying with their truth, their personal and private, that they're losing faith. They're losing faith in their government. They're losing faith in Congress. They're losing faith in the president. They're losing faith in religion. They're losing faith in marriage. They're losing faith in so many things in our society, aren't they? Although we have all these truths that we're supposed to be holding to. And people talk a lot about life being empty. There's an emptiness to it. And so when we substitute real truth for what I call substitutes, uh, there does develop an emptiness because you're not sure what to believe and what is true and what is right. And then this age where we say we're very diverse and, and we're very open-minded and we're very tolerant, we've become more and more closed-minded, haven't we? Very less tolerant and very close to ideas and other people. So I want to encourage you to think about thinking. And I want you to think, is your life based on real, verifiable truth or what you think is true? Did you know that the scriptures encourage you to look at them and to examine with your mind whether or not those the claims that the scriptures make are true. You know, oftentimes people say, well, you know, believing in God is a blind faith. 
You know, it's, it's just a blind leap of faith. Have you ever heard that expression? Did you know that the scriptures themselves encourage you to look at the claims that it makes and verify them to be true? What sort of claims? Well, the scriptures claim to be without error. Scriptures claim that they're from God. The scriptures claim that they're inspired. Uh, the scriptures claim that they are there, they're trustworthy, they're true, they're right. They never change because they're from God. But more than just claiming those things, it encourages you in so many different parts of the Bible to test them, to examine them, to evaluate them, to see whether or not they are true. On one occasion, John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to some people who believe in him. And they do believe in him. And he says, if you continue to accept and obey my teaching, you're really my followers. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. Now, we quote that last part of that verse everywhere. The truth will set you free. Not every time. Truth won't set you free just because it's truth. There, there's a process to it. And this is what Jesus says when you take in context. Those that believed in him. Now, we take the word faith and we associate with the term believe. But the word faith also comes from the root word trust. There's a trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And you believe and you trust that Jesus is the truth, the way, the life. He says you got to believe, you have to accept me, and you have to put in action. You have to obey. And what do we obey? What's the standard that he goes to here? What's the standard? It's his what? See it? You have to obey my teaching. That's the standard that is there. And so when you do that, you'll know the truth, and the truth then will set you free. Free from what? Freed from sin, free from the penalty of sin, free from the condemnation of guilt, free from the eternal damnation, freedom from your sinful, your self sinful habits, the things that you have, the freedom to live the life that God has called you to live. The scriptures encourage you to find the truth, and when you accept it, trust in it, and you put it into practice, you have the freedom that Christ and God promises. So the scriptures encourage you to find the truth. So how, what does it mean to find the truth? It means that you verify what is right, and you also false, you say what is false, right? So when you're finding the truth, what you find is false, you discard, and what you discovered is truth, you then incorporate. Now here it is in Proverbs 14, 12. There are many ways that we think are what? See the thinking? What's the thinking? We think they're right, but they're dead ends, aren't they? And more than dead ends, they can lead to death. Just because it seems right to you doesn't make it right. Just because there's a truthiness to it, right, or an emotion that you attach to it does not make it right. Scriptures claim to be truth, but it also encourages us to test if it's the right way. To examine that, to see if it's true or false. Why do we do that? Well, it prevents cynicism. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21. I like what Paul says here. Don't treat prophecy as if they weren't important, but test all prophecy. See the word test there? Hold on to what is good. Now, why does he say that? Because virtually most of the prophecies you hear that people give are false. They're not true. They don't come from God. So you can get very cynical about that, right? 
I, I have people all the time, well, the Lord gave me this message. The Lord told me that this is going to happen. And I hear that often. And after a period of time, you get very cynical about it. And then you begin to throw out the good with the what? See it? Paul says, don't grow cynical. Rather do what? Test the prophecies. Well, how do you test prophecy? Well, through Scripture. Deuteronomy 18 tells you, if a prophet's from God, every word and every statement that prophet makes will always be true. If there's one word that a prophet says it's not true, he is not from me. See, it's a high standard, isn't it? But you test it. So if you hear a prophecy, test it according to the word of God. Is it true? Is it 100% true? Not 90% true. Are you with me this morning? Not just 75% true. Don't settle for truthiness, but the objective truth to it. Test it. Don't grow cynical about it. Uh, it also prevents deception. 1 John 4, verse 1. Don't believe what? Put the spirits to the what? Test. To see if what? They belong to God. Someone claiming to have a word of knowledge from God doesn't make it true. Someone claiming to have a vision from God does not make it true. Someone having a good anecdotal story about what God has done in their life does not make it true. Someone claiming the Spirit gave them something to share with you about your life doesn't necessarily make it true. You're to verify it. The Scriptures put a high value on truth. High value on truth. And many people are discouraged and they grow weary of, of Christianity because they believe everything they're taught. They believe everything someone might tell them, right? They never try to find out whether it's true or not. Does that make sense? So here's the high value that the Bible puts on, uh, the Scripture puts on truth. Look in Proverbs 23, verse 23. You buy the truth and don't what? Sell it. You invest in the truth and the dividends, the proverb writer goes on to say, is wisdom and understanding. Is wisdom and understanding. And so you, you invest in the truth. Well, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, you look at your assumptions and you ask the right questions. In Proverbs 18, 12, this happens so often, doesn't it? Particularly if this person first speaking has authority, <clears throat> someone in authority. If that first person seems to speak, it always seems right until the right answers, until the right questions are asked. See the difference? What's the assumption? The person who's speaking knows what they're talking about, right? So therefore, what they're saying sounds right. But when the right questions are asked, the right follow-up questions are asked, it becomes apparent that what they're saying is not right. Did you know that sometimes even the experts can get it wrong? Right? Sometimes the authority of a parent or a teacher or a scientist or a philosopher or a friend or a spouse or an author or a news outlet, did you know they can sometimes get it wrong? <clears throat> but based upon the authority they had behind it, well, you know, my dad told me that. Right? Or my mom told me that. Or my teacher taught me that, right? <laughs> or my wife told me that, right? <laughs> so it must be true. Or the internet, it's on the internet, so therefore it was. <laughs> it must be true. And so we look at that. And I want you to see how a preacher can also be the first person in that story. 
For you see, in this proverb, I'm the first person, and my brother Alex is the second one. Now, here's the story I'm going to tell you. I've told this story for over 40 years. To so many people, I could spend the rest of my life going back and repenting for telling a lie. I absolutely thought it was the truth. So my brother is also a minister, <clears throat> and a few weeks ago we met at Walterboro, and we're having, he's on his way to see his children in Charlotte. And we're sitting there and we're sharing all these, we always say, we're going to write a book one time about all the funny things that's happened to us in ministry. You know? And there's quite a few things between Alex and myself that have been quite funny, just like a teacher would have all sorts of memories too, right? So I'm telling this story, and as I tell this story to you right now, I can still visualize it, that I did a funeral in Prayer, Tennessee. And as I'm leading the singing for the funeral in Prayer, Tennessee, my brother Alex is with me. And the preacher gets up. I remember his name, but I'm not going to use his name here. And the preacher gets up and says, we know that this person who died is going to hell. Now I want to speak to the rest of you so you don't join them. There was so much tension, so much incredible anger in that room, and justifiably so, incidentally, that my brother Alex turned to me and said, let's go out the back door when they go out the front, because they're only part of this. And so my brother Alex and I, when they did the closing prayer, we went out the back door, got in my Ford, and we drove away. My brother Alex said to me a couple weeks ago, that's my story, it's not yours. That didn't happen to you. Yes, it did. What are you talking about? It didn't happen to you. David, I told you that story. <laughs> that happened to me outside of Murray, Kentucky. And I had the exact thing happen to me, and I did walk out the back door, but you weren't there. And I told you that story when you told me that that preacher was doing the funeral to let you know what kind of preacher he was. It absolutely stunned me. Because right now I can visualize every single part of that story. And it still seemed like it's true to me. But I know my brother's telling the truth. And so I've told that story here many times. So I apologize. All right. <laughs> Although I still think it's true, all right? <laughs> See that? Have you ever had anything like that happen to you? Have you ever been the first person? So it, it's important then, when we're looking at this, that the Bible says you know your assumptions, and you know what the truth is, and you know how to ask the right questions. But you also have to have the right standard to find the truth, don't you? If you're going to test something, it's important that what you're testing that with is with the right measurement, right? With the right standard. Uh, otherwise, you won't know if it's a true or false reading. The scriptures, without exception, state that it's the right and truthful standard by which you must measure truth. Lynn read for us just a moment ago from Psalm chapter 19, and we recited back the benefits, the wonderful benefits of taking the Word of God for what it is. He connects the truth claims of God's Word to all the wonderful claims of what happens to us when we follow that, that measure, that standard of the Word of God as truth. I want us to go back and look at it again and just notice the claims that the Scriptures make about what it is. In this particular verse here, 
The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord can be trusted. The law of the Lord, the rules of the Lord are completely true. Hear that? That's fine. The commands of the Lord are true. There is no wiggle room. There's no gray area in that, right? That's what scripture is. That's the claim. And it says, test it, prove it, verify it. Scripture's inspired by God. It originates by God. It's truth. Now, there's another determining factor, and we know it as empirical evidence, right? That's your physical senses. And God has been so good in his word to give us empirical evidence that what he tells us is true. Do you remember the story of Thomas? Remember the story of Thomas? Thomas hears that Jesus has been raised from the dead, right? And Thomas hears that from the apostles. He's not seen that. And he goes, and when the apostles tell him that, he says, look, unless I put my fingers in his hand and in his feet and in his side, I'm not going to believe it. I need physical evidence, right? So when Jesus a week later appears and Thomas is there, Jesus provides the physical evidence, doesn't he? To which Thomas then says, my Lord and my God. He had physical evidence, empirical evidence that Jesus is the truth. I think about in Exodus chapter 13, how the Hebrew people coming out of Egyptian bondage needed physical, empirical evidence. Remember the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud? During the daytime, for those hundreds of thousands of uh, refugees, if you will, these people are now free, you have a pillar of cloud that they can see to show the security and the safety that God is with them. At nighttime in that wilderness, what does God give them, provide for them? That pillar of fire so they can see it as well. I think about the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. You talk about physical empirical evidence. Here you are running from the Egyptian army and you get to the Red Sea, this deep Red Sea, and the army's still coming and you say, Moses, which way should we go? Left or right? And he says, no, we're going to go that way. We're going to go through the sea, right? And they physically see the Red Sea part. And they walk across it as if what? On dry ground. They see that. They get to the other side. They turn around and they see the Egyptian army now crossing the same area. And what happens? They physically see how the sea then comes over them and closes up around them and destroys the Egyptian army. Empirical evidence that Jesus, that God is who he says he is. I think about Mount Sinai when Moses is on there receiving the commandments from God, right? He's up there by himself, but what's happening below? They're hearing the thunder. They're seeing the flashes of lightning. They see the fire. They smell the smoke. Uh, the trembling of the mountain, not to mention when Moses comes down off the mountain, what's happened to his face? It's glowing, isn't it? With the glory of the Lord. Physical, empirical evidence that what Scripture says is true. The shepherds in the field that night in Luke chapter 2, the angels appear and the shepherds see it, and the angels then sing praises that Christ, the child king, has been born, right? And they're rejoicing and praising. You know what they did next? 
The shepherds then left the field and went to the manger where the Christ child was. They saw him and worshiped him and gave praise for him. I think about John the Baptist in prison. John the Baptist facing death sends his followers to Jesus to ask Jesus if he really is the Messiah. The doubt, the discouragement, the wonderment what's going to happen. I love how Jesus answered him with empirical evidence. He says, you tell John the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the dead are raised. The good news is being proclaimed to the poor. In other words, I'm fulfilling scripture, John. It's important that Jesus, when he talks about this, gives John verifiable truth from scripture. Because he quotes scripture, doesn't he? He says, John, this is according to scripture. This is not a belief system about me. It's not a personal, private belief system. This is really happening. It's based on evidence, on an accurate description of reality. And when John hears that, he knows that the one that he called the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that he pointed to, he knew, he knew that Jesus was indeed the one. And in his darkest hour, in his darkest moment, he knew it. He believed it to be true. And I think it gave him strength to face what he faced with Herod. Then one other, thinking about this, thinking about, is the Bible, can it support its claims by physical evidence? Absolutely, the forgiving of sins. Remember the story when the four men brought their, that person to Jesus and they lowered him in the roof because he couldn't walk? They cut a hole in the rooftop and they lowered him down there. He's there with the whole crowd that's in there along with the religious leaders. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. You wouldn't think he would say, you would said, go up, get up and walk, right? But he says, your sins are forgiven. To which the religious leader said, that's blasphemy. No one can forgive sin except God alone. Remember? Ha So Jesus says, I'll verify who I am. I'll verify my authority. Because you, know, um, you will know that I can forgive sins because this man's about to walk. He looks at the man and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk out this room. And the man did so verifiable claim. Those are just a sample of how scriptures contain the physical empirical evidence that is truth. Find the truth. Invest in the truth. Your word, O oh Lord, is truth. God is truth. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. And so why doesn't everyone believe that the scriptures are the right standard to test and evaluate the truth? Good question. Are there any foolish people in this world? Do people make foolish decisions and make foolish thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I'll put myself in that category from time to time, but not in this one, in terms of what I believe about God. But they're foolish. Proverbs 14, verse 15. A foolish person will do what? They'll believe anything. They're gullible. But a wise person thinks about what he does. If you want to find the truth, it's going to take some effort. That's why the Bible says, study to show yourself approved. Handle the word of God correctly. If, if you don't believe, then you'll fall for anything, right? What's the latest trend? It's easier just to believe anything than to make the effort to become wise. You invest in the truth, and the dividends is wisdom and understanding. So don't be foolish. Some people don't believe it because they're just foolish. They never seek for it. Second one is the devil's work. Oh, the devil. The devil is powerful, isn't he? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, here's what he does. He blinds the minds of those who 
don't believe, they can't see the light of the good news that makes Christ's glory clear. He blinds people to the light of the glory of God. Most people in this world are not bad people. Now, there's some bad rascals in this world. There are some really bad people, right? But most people are blind people. The devil has blinded them to the truth about Christ. He's blinded them to the, to the truth about the purpose of life, to who's the creator of the universe, to the high value of humanity, to what the right worldview is. He's blinded us through the idols of our time, through the verbiage of our culture, through celebrities and education and fake religions and empty hollow philosophies and confusion and doubt. He blinds us so we can't see it. It's what the devil's so good at. I may throw a name out here you've never heard of before. Perhaps you have a guy named Voltaire. During the Enlightenment, one that's considered a smart man, still considered one of the great intellects of Western civilization, Voltaire attacked Catholicism for being fake. He believed that the Bible was not true. He was a high critic of the Bible, did not believe in the Word of God, and he predicted that 100 years after his death, that the Bible would totally disappear because the world would be led by reason, and no reasonable person could believe in the Bible, and that it would just disappear. It's interesting to go to 1881, 100 years after Voltaire's death, and the Bible is in to all the masses because 100 years after Voltaire's death during that time, the press, printing press was developed, and it went to all the masses of people, right? It's also interesting that at one point in, uh, after Voltaire dies, that one of the houses that Voltaire owned, the Geneva Bible Society used it for a brief period of time to store Bibles and distribute <laughs> to people. He's smart, but blind. There are people in this world that are kind, smart, and loving, and friendly, and good people, but whose minds are blinded by the devil. There's another reason why the Word of God, the Scripture, is rejected as being truth. And it's found in John chapter 3, verse 19. People love the darkness instead of the what? The light. Why do they love the darkness? Because they want to do what's evil. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to have to live with guilt or consequences. Uh, uh, this is my life. I don't want some ancient document telling me what to do here in the 21st century. And if you love the darkness long enough, you'll eventually fall in the category that the Bible calls a mocker. In 2 Peter, 2, uh, 2 Peter 3, you must understand that in the last days, mockers will scoff and follow their own desires. They'll say, where's this return he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it is since the beginning of creation. And Peter goes on to say, mockers deliberately ignore that God created the world. And God at one time was the one who sent the flood during Noah's day to bring judgment. So often hear this. Well, you know, even if the Bible isn't true and Jesus is a myth, it's still the best way to live. I mean, look at the morals and the ethics and the teachings. of They're wonderful, even if they're not, even if they're not entirely true. So I'm just going to live by those principles. It's the best way to live your life. In fact, I had a professor in college at Lipscomb tell me that in a class one day. He said, look, even if this isn't true, which I believe it is true, the professor said, it's still the best way to live your life, to shape your morals, your ethics, and a way to live your life and raise your children. And I raised my hand and I challenged him. I said, not according to the Bible, it's not. 
The Bible just said the opposite of what you said. Because Scripture says if it's not true, then discard it. Don't live it. So what if the story of the Bible is just a myth? Well, as long as it brings me happiness, and as long as it makes my life good, and it's, it's true for me, well, why isn't it okay for me to say it's just the best way to live, and it may be mythical? Because you can't make the Bible truthiness. You can't make it post-truth. It's a poor substitute. Because the Bible claims that it's real objective truth. And if it isn't, then it's a lie. And why would you want to base your life upon a lie? Just look at two New Testament authors for a moment. Let's look at Paul. I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to, after these couple, let it go here. But just think, here's what Paul said about this whole idea of whether or not you should follow it if it's a myth. Uh, Paul says, look, hold firmly to the message I preach to you. If you don't, you believe for nothing. What I received, he received that from Jesus, wrote to Damascus, and for 10 years afterwards in Galatia, or in, in the wilderness, rather, I pass on to you. And this is the most important of all. Now, here's what he's claiming. Christ died for our sins just as scriptures said he would. He was buried. He was raised on the third day just as what? Scripture said he would. He appeared to Peter. He then appeared to the 12 apostles. After that, he appeared to more than what? 500 people at one time. So this is not just like one isolated person who saw him on the road by himself. He appears to many people at different times, different people, and groups of 500 at once. Notice he says, most of them are still living, so you still have eyewitnesses to verify it, but some have died. He appeared to James, then he appeared to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. Now, isn't it quite clear from Paul that he believes every word that he's just written? Right? That every word of this story of the gospel is absolutely true. There's no myth to it, but it's truth. Now, go to Luke for just a moment. Now, Luke and Paul were both converts. They were not the original apostles. But they're converted to Christianity. And so you have Luke writing, and the purpose of his writing, he says, in Luke chapter 1 and following is his, is this. Many people have attempted to write about the things that have taken place among us. Reports of these things were handed down to us, so it's some 25, 30 years later, after the ascension. They were people who saw these things for themselves from the beginning, eyewitnesses. They saw them and then passed the word on to us. With this in mind, now here's the test, I myself have carefully looked, he's tested and measured, into everything from the beginning, so I decided to write down an orderly report of exactly what happened. I'm doing this for you, most excellent Theophilus. I want you to know that the things you have been taught are what? Are true. Then he writes another book, Acts chapter 1, 1 through 2. Theophilus, same guy. I wrote about Jesus in my earlier book. That's the book of Luke. I wrote about what he did and taught until the day he was taken up to heaven. Before Jesus left, that's the ascension. He gave orders to the apostles he had chosen. He did this through the Holy Spirit. After his suffering and death, he appeared to them. The resurrection, same thing that Paul says. In Matthew, Mark, John, and 1 John, and Peter as well. In many ways, he proved that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. During that time, he spoke about God's kingdom. And one day, Jesus was eating with them. He gave them a command, do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my Father promised. That's the Holy Spirit. You've heard me talk about it. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now here's the point, I'll close it. Luke and Paul absolutely debunked the idea that you can just follow Jesus 
I'm sorry, I'm going to use one more verse, <laughs> as, as a myth. They say it's real, it's true. It's absolutely certain. We've looked at it. We know it to be true. And here it is. I'm sorry. First Corinthians, I'm not apologizing for using the verse, just apologize. I led you like a preacher astray and said I was finally through, but I wasn't concluding, all right? <laughs> so here it is. You've got to get this one in. First Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, what we preach doesn't mean anything. Your faith doesn't mean anything either. It's not the best way to live if it's a myth. Notice what else he says in verse 17. Same statement, but adds, your sins are also not forgiven. If it's a myth, you have no hope after this life. Then verse 19. Do we have hope in Christ only for this life? Then people should pity us more than anyone else. They should admire us for what we're doing here if it's a myth. They should feel pity for us, right? Because it's not true. So to sum this up, I love thinking about how you think and thinking about truth. The truth of God's word is verifiable. It's true. It's real. It's objective. You can put your life upon it. There's nothing that's about it that's false. And the scriptures invite you to test it and examine it. And when you do, when you accept it and believe it, then you're going to act upon it because it's going to verify for you that in Christ you find salvation and the real purpose of life. It's going to confirm that Jesus is the creator of everyone and everything. It's going to reveal to us how we should live, treat others, and raise our children. It's going to be a place where we see that humans are placed in their proper hierarchy in the creation that were made in the image of God. It's going to persuade you that God's word is true and in turn is going to falsify the ideology of secularism and materialism and idolatry and humanism that the world follows after so blindly today. It debunks the verbiage of political correctness, the absurdity of what is promoted by the entertainment industry and taught in our education systems, and exposes the lies of human invented religions and the hollow and empty philosophies of our time. That's what truth does. Truth is truth and you discard what is false. You can, what is false. You can depend on it. Put your full weight of confidence. So let's, let's stand. Let's stand. I want to offer this prayer of confidence uh, with you. It's based on Psalm 119, uh, several verses from there. So this week, I pray that uh, the word of God will be a lamp and light to your path. That the word will be, you'll see as a covenant gift that God has given to you. That you need to accept, believe, and obey. I pray that your heart will be filled with joy from the promises you find in the word of his truth. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? amen? If you need to respond anyway, be baptized, place membership, or need the prayers of Larry, one of our elders, make your way to the front bench as we now sing this song.